Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm eager to share a discussion about how we can support the young kids in our lives by helping them develop a sense of belonging. We're listening back to a conversation I had a few months ago with two guests who have powerful stories about learning to love themselves. They both wrote children's books about their lives growing up as kids of color in Minnesota. They want to help us understand how to help kids feel self-love and a sense of belonging. Anthony Walsh is the author of the Hockey is for Everybody children's book series. When we talked in 2023, he was just finishing up law school at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law in St. Paul. He has since graduated and is now working as a community engagement specialist for Hennepin County. Anthony is also an adoptee and passionate about expanding rights for adopted people. And he coaches youth hockey. I also spoke with Tuba Wen, the author of the children's book, My Daddy Tells Me. Tuba has been an early childhood educator for more than a decade and approaches teaching with an anti-bias and anti-racist perspective. She's now working as the communication specialist for the Minnesota House of Representatives People of Color and Indigenous Caucus and Queer Caucus. I love the title, My Daddy Tells Me, and I started our conversation that day by asking Tuba what the book is about. Sure. Thank you so much. So my book, My Daddy Tells Me, is about a father and a daughter migrating from Vietnam to America. And during this time, he provides her affirmations, as it leads My Daddy Tells Me. And so these affirmations were written from a space um, in my life uh, of stigmas and just the lack of affirmations and hearing um, these uplifting messages from my own father. So rather than dwelling in this trauma, I use this as a catalyst and a tool to be able to use this to heal myself and my my relationship with my father and help inspire the next generation of parents um, in BIPOC communities to be able to heal from the things that we didn't receive when we were children um, and that affection um, and coming from the uh, Vietnamese uh, community as well. I didn't receive a lot of that from my parents as they were immigrants and refugees working outside of the home trying to make ends meet um, and just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a lot of time and space to talk about our identities and how we got here and what are we going to do as a family and a unit to move forward and preserve our culture and our history and our heritage, but also assimilate to this new space and culture that we're in. Let's uh, talk about the word affirmation. A lot of us, you know, we use that in conversation, but for people who are not familiar with affirmations, what are you what are you talking about? How do you describe what that is? Sure. I say that it's language and phrases utilized to uplift and fill someone's uh, self-esteem and rebuild um, this identity in themselves and feel equipped and feel empowered um, and that they are valued, they're seen, and they're heard. Um, and that's beautiful. And their authentic selves are celebrated. Right. And I'm going to ask you to read a little bit from your book in a moment. But I, I want to get back to what you were describing during your childhood. Um, when you don't when you have a lot of unanswered questions, or things aren't talked about, uh, as a child, you carry that somehow as an adult. Yes, yes, it stays with you forever. Right. And as we're talking about identity, having self esteem and that self identity is important. But we also have to have that in our social self as well. And who are we when we leave our homes and when we are in society and we adopt these communities and identities because they give us a representation that helps us feel more of who we are Mm -hmm. um, and that it uplifts us and that we're seen in that as well. And so with those celebrations come with that growth and confidence. And I think that that's why it's so important to have a village behind you that's always ready to hype you up and Mm -hmm. always ready to give you uh, what you need to fill uh, yourself um, 
and feel confident. Okay. Actually, I liked it when y'all called me Miss Angela, as I think about it now. <laughs> it's the Southern influence. It's it my is. friends from the South. You know, it's, it's respect. A, it, you- it, and it's, I think it can be a, a Black thing, too, as well. So I actually felt that when you, when you said that. Um, Anthony, tell me about your book, uh, Hockey is for Everybody. Yeah. Thanks, Miss Angela. I uh, appreciate <laughs> it. So uh, Hockey is for Everybody is kind of a, a semi-autobiographical. It's based on a true story. And uh, there are things that had happened to me when I was growing up playing hockey in Minnesota. And uh, there was a lot of great, great things that happened as far as my experience and playing with people and uh, being one of the only people of color on my team, if not the only people, a person of color. But and I have to uh, pause. You yeah. didn't just play hockey. You played hockey. <laughs> so tell yeah. me about your accomplishments um, as a youth <laughs> hockey player. Yeah. Uh, no, of course. So uh, growing up, I played youth hockey for Edina and I played with a great uh, group of guys uh, who were Again, incredible people, incredible hockey players. We had had great success growing up as a unit. Uh, there was a Fargo tournament, a Fargo International. We'd won that, uh, won the state championship as uh, ba- uh, Peewees, and then in Bantams uh, had a very good season as well. And then uh, people went on the varsity. And uh, then when I was a, a sophomore, I played with a lot of those guys junior year as well. And then as a senior, um, we won the state championship, double uh, so A state championship. So that was an incredible, uh, you know, moment, incredible feeling. And, uh, you know, years later, I went back and just checked the archives. And I was uh, the first African American, um, you know, to be in the double A division to be a champion. And, um, you know, that was really incredible. Uh, There had been a Latino man uh, prior with uh, Creedon Durham Hall, uh, who was actually adopted as well. I I know him very well. I don't want to tell his story. But just anyway, so yeah, the first African American man um, to, you know, be on be on that team. So that was a really um, you know, I guess cool accomplishment, especially looking back at it now. But I went on after that to do, you know, some other things. But uh, yeah, always, always will consider those to be the most pivotal um, times of my life growing up with those guys. And I'm wondering when you look back at, at photos, your team at one point, you won a state championship, right? Yep. So yeah, we uh, won the state championship and uh, a couple times. But yeah. <laughs> and when you look at the pitches, do you see you stand out a lot, right? Oh, yeah, always. You can, uh, there's Anthony. Because like, right? you know? you're the one black <laughs> player on the team. Yeah, right? um, exactly. Yeah. And uh, when I was younger, there was, um, you know, another guy I'd played with uh, who was Hawaiian with dark skin. And, um, you know, he, we are still very good friends today. But, um, yeah, it's being you know, the only black African American on my team. And you can look at those photos and it's just kind of again, oh, you know, there, there's Anthony. So, um, you know, it was always, uh, so, so stuck out. Tell me about your book, Hockey is for Everybody, a children's book. What What's it mm-hmm. about? Right. Uh, so, I mean, the children's book is about allyship, friendship, and what that does, and, you know, the beauty of growing up uh, with a diverse community. So, uh, Anthony is the main character, and so is Matt. Matt Nelson is a person I grew up with. I talked with him kind of before all that happened, and, you know, was on my team, and, um, you know, us, we're still really good friends today, but had been just a person and other people as well growing up, like Parker Reno and a couple of other people that were great, um, you know, allies. So the book kind of centers around that and us winning a championship together as, um, you know, mm-hmm. youth, youth hockey players. But there's, uh, you know, as well, the darker, you know, more side to that where people had been saying things like, go back to the basketball court or why aren't you shooting hoops or, um, you know, go eat bananas, stuff like that. So I, I did experience that, um, you know, Enough that it, uh, you know, had an effect on me quite a bit, right? And it wasn't once, it wasn't twice, it wasn't every time I was on the ice either. But kind of, again, it was it was enough to, um, you know, do do psychological, emotional damage for sure. But, um, you know, I fought through that. And again, with the help of, you know, friends and, um, you know, some of the people around me as well, you know, were able to help me, you know, fight fight through that. But, uh, yeah, those are some of the things that did happen. But then 
uh, the book centers around the allyship and, you know, the happiness that you get from, you know, being together and, uh, you know, people that are different, you know, finding out that we're more alike than different and that this is how mm-hmm. we're going to move forward with a common cause and a common goal and uh, win a championship. So um, that's really kind of what it's about. And But it's also designed to be an icebreaker for maybe more of the deeper conversations that parents can have with kids. And mm-hmm. uh, I use Taki because I'm from Minnesota and I could, you know, use that as my personal story, but also be relatable in the state of hockey. Uh, so it just happened to kind of all come together, you know, when that moment happened. If you're just joining us, we're talking with two children's book uh, book authors about uh Growing up and being a kid of color and about having a sense of belonging, feeling like you fit in. And, and how do you help children have that, um, that self-love so they can live better lives? Uh, Tuba, as we go back to you, uh, your book, My Daddy Tells Me, first the illustrations. Uh, you know, I know our listeners can't see it, but they, they can, can Google it and find it. Talk to me about the illustrations. And then I want you to read a little bit from the book, My Daddy Tells Me. Describe sure. the cover. Yeah. So the cover was designed um, off of uh, the da- father is carrying his daughter on their shoulders. And you see this background of them celebrating uh, Lunar New Year, which is a very uh, pivotal celebration in the Vietnamese culture. And But I think what makes it so exciting is that which I didn't know either, but when I published my children's book, that uh, my, my character is the first Vietnamese African-American author published in children's book. Um, so that's amazing. And it, again, it's autobiographical. So it's, it's little me, little baby T on mm-hmm. the cover with my dad. Um, and you see that like she, she's having, she's celebrating this Asian right holiday but she isn't fitting this aesthetic. So I think that already is a prompt that I was very, um, intentional with because I wanted to be able to illustrate to children like what is a bi like the biracial diaspora and what is it like as a child when you are mixed race and then you grow up in society where you're not you feel not one or the other not one or the other Um, and when you are also in your family and like your aesthetics right like your sister your brother your siblings they look different everyone has different attributes and some of the genes let me stop you there siblings Uh look different what do you mean yeah so my older sister right she has all of the aesthetics of the traditional like Vietnamese Asian girl she's four foot nothing she's a hundred pounds she's just like she is very Asian presenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and of all of my siblings, I have the most African American features or, um, just look, right? Mm-hmm. Aesthetic compared to all of them. So my sister and I are only two years apart. So we really spent a lot of time together growing up and she was always the fun size and I was the big size. Uh, so it you was were taller and curvier, you know? So, and I was like, <laughs> and that in itself was really hard to find your identity. And like right. when you're constantly compared to also your sibling, who's very presenting in one specific right part right. of the identity. And when you are not, how do you see yourself in the Vietnamese culture when you're bigger and taller um, and don't fit in physically? And Did you just talk about it, though, to anyone? Did you talk to your sister about it? or No, or it no. It's always internalized, right, right and compartmentalized because you want to fit in. So then you minimize yourself and, your, and who you think you can be to put on these different masks. So it's really hard to find and shape identity when you are taking on others. But I look at you and I, I just see beautiful. Right? Thank you. Thank you. But as a child, you're looking in the mirror and you just see. I I'm don't not. Fit I don't in. fit in. I grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, right? So for the life of me, I have always tried, and no knock to Mr. Tom Petty, but I try to wear the plaid shirt. I try to wear cowboy boots. I try to straighten my hair. I right. tried to be a white girl. 
Because that's what you were surrounded by. Right. That's what I was surrounded by. So Mm -hmm. this like Eastern, like this European ideal standard of look and beauty. So when it's not only perpetuated in media and greater society, but it's immediate in those general circles, right, your social circles, you, again, just continue to marginalize and compartmentalize yourself to help fit that social identity so then you can form your own internal identity. And that's not how it works. I'm exhausted right? hearing about it. It's exhausting. It is so exhausting because you can't just live. You have to be constantly fighting. You have to constantly trying to fit in. And at some point in life, you just get tired. It's like, I, I just want to be me. Right. So so take us to this this book, uh, My Daddy Tells Me. Read a little bit from your children's book. Sure. I'll get started. Um, My Daddy Tells Me He Is Happy That I Am His Daughter. My daddy tells me the day I was born was the best day of his life. My daddy tells me he loves me. My daddy tells me he will always protect me. My daddy tells me he likes when we perform karaoke as a duet. My daddy tells me he enjoys cooking pho with me. My daddy tells me as long as I work hard, my dreams can be a reality. My daddy tells me he values my worth. My daddy tells me my skin color is his favorite color. My daddy tells me I am intelligent. And I just want to tell you, daddy, Gong Gamong Ba. Thank you, daddy. <laughs> So our listeners uh, can't see the the illustrations that go. So as you're turning the pages, what what are on the pages? What are the images that you see? My whole heart uh, <laughs> illustrated throughout. And so one of the key, um, it's such a beautiful story with the illustrations because my illustrator uh, is from Italy. We never met other than one time. And I had to entrust this artist and my artistry that she could properly illustrate my childhood, my memories on paper did for the world to see. Did you send her photos? How did you do that? Yes. Yeah, so we had, I had to send her lots and lots of reference photos and we had lots of conversations because even in her art career, she's never drawn Asian aesthetic, let alone biracial. And like, what does that mean? Uh, so we had lots of strong conversations so she could understand the basis that I could entrust her with that. And so each of the pages really, it was important for me that it has this emotional appeal and that it has infinite stories in it because from it's written for a three to five year old and so with a young child's mind you'd be able to they are able to look at the images and create their own narrative and when they do that it allows the adults around them to see the perspective from their world and that is so that's so powerful because not only it's pre-reading skills but um, it's them being able to interpret images and to allow for deeper conversations. But for an adult, it's also teaching me how to talk to my child. Right? Mm-hmm. Anthony's nodding hard. Yeah, right? no, I'm true. like, yeah, I'm 54 facts. and I'm just crying. Uh-huh. I'm like, <laughs> Tell me that again, Dad. <laughs> right? Or uh, help me yeah. remember, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what do you think when you, you hear her read from her book, um, Anthony? I, it makes me feel um, you know, vulnerable in a very good way. Right? It makes me feel um, you know, back to your inner child and uh, maybe, you know, what you were lacking, whether it was, you know, malicious or not. I think that's also really cool about this book is that you're, you know, letting the world know, you know, how it was without, 
you know, chastising your parents. Like your parents did the very best they could in the world that we all grew up in. But as we kind of talked about a little bit off air, um, you know, being who you needed when you were younger. And that's never about, you know, looking down on, you know, the life that you've had so far, but it's only looking, you know, forward with the positive message and making it so that, um, you know, some of the struggles that you may have gone through, other people don't have to go through that kind of stuff. So it's not easy putting yourself out there. And that's why I've been just so impressed and, you know, so, um, you know, like I, I, I've applauded Tuba uh, for, you know, what she's been doing because mm-hmm. I know, you know, how that is and it's not easy. So um, just seeing, you know, the illustrations, which are incredible and the cover and, you know, everything really, uh, you know, drew me in and I know it'll draw anybody else and that's able to see it and read the book. So I recommend it for everybody. Um, Anthony, the first page of your book, uh, Hockey is for Everybody, it was actually a series of books. Yes, so it's a series of books, and yes. So one of the books, uh, the first page, it looks sad to me. It shows a kid sitting on his bed with his head in his hands. Uh, Was was that a young version of you? Yeah, uh, it was a young version of myself. So Anthony is the main character, and it's uh, semi-autobiographical, so it's things that necessarily happened to me uh, at that time kind of mixed together from maybe when I was about four years old, five years old, to the time that I was about 20. So um, the kid's there, you know, with his hands right in his head, in his head, because, um, you know, don't give up, right? You know, frustrated with the stuff that's been happening, knowing that maybe you're going to go to the rink and, you know, get somebody that's going to try and get under your skin. But, um, you know, you got to keep on fighting through. So it just kind of is showing that, um, you know, frustration sometimes that you love hockey, but at times you might be anxious to even go to the rink because you didn't know what was going to happen. Or maybe you did know what was going to happen, right? Sometimes you would play enough of these teams and you'd see enough of these people that you wouldn't know what to expect. So <laughs> I think that's kind of, you know, maybe more about what mm-hmm. that what that first page is about. Yeah. Could you read a little bit from, from one of your books? Yeah. Oh, for everybody? Gosh, mm-hmm. I would I would love to. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I, I'll kind of just start maybe a little bit in the middle here. But basically what has happened is that. Um, Jason is the uh, prote- uh, antagonist and uh, has been pestering Anthony really a lot of the entire game, telling him to, uh, you know, go shoot hoops. Why aren't you playing basketball? You know, go eat bananas, all that kind of stuff. But the whole way through, um, you know, Anthony's persevering. He's not giving up. And then there's a point where he's about to, you know, retaliate what you don't want. And then Matt, his teammate and best friend, steps in and defends him. So we're at that pe- uh, place now where Matt has stepped in and, uh, you know, helped him out. So. It says, when play resumed, Matt passed the puck to Anthony, who had no trouble catching it this time. Anthony raced toward the Cardinals goalie, but as he soared down the ice, he was tripped. Behind him, Jason said, you don't belong here. Yes, I do, Anthony said, determined. The referee's whistle blew as he threw his arms into an X above his head. The game stopped for Anthony to take a penalty shot while Jason was sent to the penalty box. Every seat in the packed arena was empty as the crowd stood to cheer. At the sound of the whistle, Anthony took off like a rocket. He closed in on the Cardinals goalie's net, moving his sticking body to the right. He took the shot, and the pug slid between the goalie's legs into the net. Score! The Monarchs were the champions. Anthony glanced at the box and caught Jason looking at him differently. After the Monarchs received their first place medal, the two teams lined up to say, good game, and shake hands. Then Jason skated to Anthony. Hey, man, I'm really sorry for what I said. You played great. Jason held out his hand. Anthony studied him. Thanks, he said. You know I belong here. Hockey is for everybody. Jason nodded, and finally Anthony took Jason's hand. They shook hands longer than anyone else. I'll see you this summer, said Jason. Anthony nodded. Their long handshake ended, and the two players skated back to their teammates. So that's uh, the ending there. And then the second book is Anthony Goes to Camp. 
um, mm-hmm. which is then mm-hmm. Jason and Anthony solidifying what that friendship looks like, you know, owning a problem, identifying it, and then moving forward and fixing it. So um, is, that's the second book in the series. It, are these stories based on, on things that really happened to you? Yep. Yeah, yeah. They're based on things that really happened to me. And I c- kind of said, you know, autobiographical in a sense that it wasn't boom, 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 boom. But like I took, you know, stories, things, experiences mm-hmm. that had happened over the 20 some years that I had been. Um, you know, on a rink almost, you know, all 365, you know, for those 20 years and uh, put them into a book so that uh, the kids that are people of color, black, you know, players now are able to take that and say, hey, you know what, I'm not alone in this. I'm not isolated. And, you know, I can persevere. And there's a happy ending at the end of this. There's a light at the end of the tunnel and to not give up. So, um, you know, part of that, again, is to be who you needed when you were younger and, um, you know, there just wasn't somebody in that space able to do that at that time. And now that I'm here, I you know hope that that gives hope and, uh, you know, brilliance and light to the next generation. So a big part of your childhood was uh, being a, a young black hockey player when most of the other hockey players uh, were white, but also the fact that you're adopted. Yes. yes. Yeah. I think that's, a, you know, as much of a large part of it as well. Yeah. And so um, how... Your your adoptive parents are white, yes, and you're yeah. African American, yeah. and so were you aware of that when you were? Uh, how much did you know about your adoption and how you came to be with your family? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I knew enough, but you know, not everything, and um, you know, I was aware of it from a very young age. My mm-hmm. mother talks about when I was uh, three years old. I, there's, I might mess it up a little bit, but it, I said something like, "Mom, like you're white, I'm black. Uh, you're a girl, and I'm a guy." You, uh, you're old and I'm young. <laughs> I wear you wear glasses and I don't. But you know what, Mom? We're a lot alike. And she, you know, talks about that and remembers that. And you know, the idea that this young, you know, three or four year old was able to discern that. Wait a minute, we look different and all these kind of things. But my overarching message that I was able to receive was that well, we're actually a lot alike. You know, so I think mm-hmm. that's really powerful, and that just goes to the the power of diversity and the strength of the power of diversity, showing that. Here, you know, we talk about, oh, young kids don't understand that stuff. I tell you, I was four years old talking about looking different than my mother, yet loving her and knowing that at the end of the day, we're a lot alike. And then there was another time that I was um, around the same age as well. So I think maybe this is when that kind of stuff consciously maybe comes into your brain is around three, four, five years old. But um, I was digging through a cupboard under my bed at one point. And my mom actually told this more recently. And, you know, we tear up when we hear about it. But um, and she was like, oh, like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm looking for my mom. And like, you know, that's, it was a, you know, real story and never in, have I ever considered my mom not to be my mom or anything, but just that like, you know, there was something that I knew that I was in a different place. There was a disconnect that I was aware of whether I knew it or not. And that's how I was expressing myself was to be digging through my, mm-hmm. you know, under my bed, looking for my mother. So, I mean, like, those are kind of things that, you know, I carry with me, obviously, still to this day and a happy ending to that story. I have now reunited with my biological family after those 25 years that, we were separated in 2020. So, um, you know, there is that there. And, um, you know, that was never a guarantee because my records are still closed and all those mm-hmm. kind of things. It was a longer story through ancestry and social media, et cetera. But yes. What, so. did, what <laughs> did that, uh, how did that affect you once you were able to, to find the biological parents and, and meet them? Yeah. Like, meet them, mother, father, uh, siblings, all 12 mm-hmm. to 13 of us. So, um, wow. you know, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, from ages, 12 to 35 you know so um but yeah i i i am careful sometimes when i talk about this just because mm-hmm. um 
you know, some adoptees might never get the opportunity to have that happen. Right. So, and who want that to happen? So I don't want to say, Oh my God, like your life is not made if that doesn't happen to you. But I mean, like I am a much more whole person. Like I don't wonder anymore. I, it's crazy because I know that every single day those thoughts consume my mind. They, they consumed it. Right. Like, you know, where am I, where's my biological family? Well, I knew I had brothers, you know, and I do have a younger sister as well and all these kind of things. But, um, you know, at that time, but, you know, what are they doing? What is my mother doing? Like, you know, why, why did this happen? Right. All those kind of things. And those are no longer questions I have to wrestle with. You know, I could, you know, pick up the phone and call her right now or my biological father or siblings and all those kind of things. And although those 25 years could never be, um, you know, uh, back i could never get those back i mean like i still feel so blessed and so grateful to be in the position that i'm in it's the only life i've ever known i would never change it for anything and um you know i I stick by that still to this day do you see yourself writing children's books about that part of your life in the future <laughs> maybe yes i, I actually at 100 percent. so 100 percent. i don't necessarily know if it'll be tomorrow but that is that is 100 percent on the docket in minneapolis abby on the phone good morning abby thanks for calling in and what did you want to share with us yeah, hi, good morning. Um, thanks for this really moving and powerful show. Um, I'm a board member of a small but mighty nonprofit called Power of Story. And we work with um, counties, but also directly with young people who have been in foster care, who are in foster care, who are, are adoptees, um, to uh, better understand their life story. And that actually means like researching and finding photos, maybe just one photo, maybe there's no photos, and it's interviews with family members. It's really piecing together the story and the true story, not just these are the highlights and things you can, you know, like tell everybody and feel really great about, but like the, the true story, the hard stuff, and then putting that together in a life book that's age appropriate, mm-hmm. um, both for, for the young people and also for their, their guardians and their caretakers. And I guess I just wanted to invite your guests to speak a little more to the power of really knowing your true story and where you come from and how that can help shape where a young person can go in their life. Like why that's so important to know, not only the triumphs and, you know, um, sort of those, those amazing, um, you know, bright spots, but, but like also understanding the traumas mm-hmm. as we, as we know about historical trauma and how things are inherited and passed on through generations how understanding those things can really lead ultimately to the possibility of freedom and transformation. So, mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, That's uh, uh, Abby yeah, in Minneapolis. You. And, um, and Tuba, I, I think we should would share with our listeners uh, a little bit more about your family story. Uh, you ended up learning that you're biracial, uh, Vietnamese and, uh, and black when you were a teenager. And so like, what was with the delay in that? Yeah, thank you. So kind of going back and sharing with the listeners that my parents um, are immigrants from Vietnam. And so my dad, um, lack for a better term, is a, a product of the Vietnam War. My grandfather was African American, first, you know, serving um, this country in Vietnam in a foreign world. And then my grandmother was looking for a way to live and survive and find her way out. Um, and so my dad came along. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the, the troops had left 
Vietnam and this fall of Saigon, my grandmother was in exile with my dad and uh, his brother, and they were sent back to a very rural village town in Vietnam. He experienced so much discrimination um, and being a firstborn son and being dark skin in Vietnam, he did not get a lot of labor jobs. He was not able to provide for his family. So that did something right to his his identity and his growth, right? But then he found my mother. They were in an arranged marriage. Next thing you know, they were in the refugee camps in the Philippines. I was born. I was nine months old. Uh, then we came to America and I was already one. Um, so again, when we talk about like come migrating to a no, new country and instantly it is survival instinct mode mm-hmm. so it is provide for my family and get through the day right so we didn't have those formative conversations about who we are our race our identity because my dad was already so consumed with his Vietnamese identity and his self that that's what I knew and that's what I grew up in and that's the household and culture that I celebrated mostly but it was the music when we and I and I realized this like watching family footage when I was a kid, uh, we we're dancing around to Michael Jackson. We have Celine Dion going right, like New Jack Swing was my daddy. That was him, right? Like <laughs> next too close when that comes on air, no matter what is happening, the world stops. That's what he's going to jam out to. That's my dad. Uh, so we had these like influences, right? But we never labeled it. We didn't really know. Um, and then yes, I was um, in middle school, and then it was really. Ridiculous as this may be, but it was right when uh, Dave Chappelle had his one of his episodes where it was like this race draft, right? And yeah. then all of a sudden there was like this huge um, desire to like claim your culture and claim who you are and claim this identity. And so then all of a sudden I'm stuck like I had my friends was like, oh, we'll draft you. You one of us. You know, like you, you black girl. Come on over here. And so in that moment was like. Almost like the first time too, in like like right as like a young adult that belonging. like belonging. We, we, we claim you. We claim you. Mm-hmm. Like this is a physical and like <laughs> emotional grasp, and never happened to me before. And then it was like, oh my gosh, and that was so p- moving for me. And then it was my sister was like, you know, we're part black, right? What? what? <laughs> when? Older since, sister? Since when? Why didn't nobody tell me? Oh, that made sense because for me as a child, then I'm my my with my innocence, I my explanation for myself every time people would ask me like, "You say you're Vietnamese, but how, like how says he's Vietnamese, but how's white?" Light skin, you are dark skin, so you're lying. You're not Vietnamese, right? And so that in itself was like, then maybe I don't know. And so as a child, I'm like, oh, I'm I'm dark skin because I'm from South Vietnam and I'm closer to the equator. So your dad didn't talk about it. It's not like he lied about it. He just didn't talk about it. Mm-mm. No, we right. just never. It never was something we talked about. Okay, so mm-hmm. getting back to Abby's question, our caller, she wants to know, like, why is this so important? I mean, there are a lot of families with different stories that you know they're just things you don't talk about, right? But it sort of hangs in the air. This uncertainty, this not knowing, and so you know, what do you say to people about like you know the importance of of having conversations uh, with your children about um, you know the good and the bad about like family history and just the truth and, and, you know, because it can affect their mental health. Yeah. Well, they're most certainly when we're talking about intergeneral trauma, right? Like we're talking about my grandmother's, my maternal side of the family. Like that's all I've known. 
I don't know much of the patriarchy. I've never met my grandfather. I never knew my grandpa. So there's a lot that ha- that hangs into where my grandmother was, right? Mm-hmm. Like she had to ensure my mother had the best chance possible. So she arranged for my mother to get married to my father. Now my mother is showing me what I am supposed to know about love, commitment, submissiveness, like what it is to be a partner and all of that based on that. But the, those are traumas that we aren't like we haven't talked about. But as mm-hmm. I've gotten older, we we are able to use these spaces to talk about like how did we get here and how do some of these behaviors become normalized? Um, but they're they're but it's based in trauma and hurt. But we don't heal and talk about it and unpack that as right. a family. What are, we're just moving through life with all this hurt. Um, so I think that it's so important be able to be able to have that platform and to be able to sit with your child at a younger age and being able to slowly and talk about our histories and how did we get there and what shapes them. But it's not always about the trauma and the abuse and the violence, but it's the resilience, right? And it's the impact that we're still here and that we can still have a day to like love and heal each other and talk about um, those spaces um, and heal. And Anthony, you said earlier that, you know, um, because you're adopted as a child and, and you, you knew this, that not a day went by that you weren't always thinking about, you know, this other family. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, 100%. It's, you know, if you're aware of that, how could you not kind right. of, right? Like Even though you're in yeah. a, a loving home yeah. and, and, and you have family, you're right. still, you have questions. Yeah, there's nothing to do with the fact that I wasn't in a loving home or, you know, et cetera. It's just like literally... You know, we all want to know where we come from. I think that's human nature. You want to, like, again, belong. And, um, you know, you want to see people that look like you. And just, uh, you know, if you don't have that, it can be really traumatic. And, uh, like, everybody wants to fit in, right? When you know that you're different, you're the other. I, I think as Tuba was kind of saying earlier, right? Like, you try to find ways to not stick out and to make yourself fit in when ultimately, you know, you know that you're not like you know the like you're not you're not white or you're not whatever right but like you do your best to try and not make yourself a target um so so i've had a lot of conversations on this show about the youth mental health crisis that we're seeing mm-hmm. um so beyond race mm-hmm. right and identity and and that uh definition of it what do you see in a lot of like adolescent and teenage uh, kids today, this sense of belonging, who am I, and just the disruption that they have gone through, and this this searching that they seem to be doing, and just and many of them feeling lost, even you know young adults feeling lost right now. What do you think is, that is about? Micro rejections. What is that? Micro rejections. What does that mean? So these are these nuanced behaviors that go unseen, right? Are normalized. Like I'm trying to tell you something and you ignore me, or like you're looking down on your phone and I'm trying to tell you something that was special and that was unique to me and I'm trying to tell you something right and then someone doesn't give you that attention right and doesn't validate your perspective right Mm -hmm. these are these are these small rejections that happen and occur over time that when people in your inner circles and closest to you in that ecosystem that you have built to help protect you as um, a shield and they don't see you and they don't reciprocate that respect who are you then? Like, then what do I have to do then to re- to deserve that respect? Um, 
No one sees me. No one sees me. And so I have to enact in extreme behaviors to get that, Mm. right? And so we're seeing this, and I'm, I work in early education, right? So like I'm taking this back to the, to our younger children as that when we're seeking attention, right? They are going to normally react in negative behavior to get attention, whatever they have to do to get attention, right? And so we see that as it manifests as adults and as young teens, as that when they're moving through life and they're not able to find social spaces that both validate who they are and uplift who they are, then it reduces who they think they can't be or can be, Mm. right? And Mm -hmm. so we have to be able to label that and see that it is in our school systems, right? So when you don't see your own culture, you don't see your own history in these history books and in, in, in these lessons. But when you do, it's all about ancestral abuse. It's all about exploitation and, and that we were slaves or we came from this or that. No, no, no. Take it back a little bit more. We were royalty, actually. We were, we built. Right. Society and world. That's the conversation we should be having. And that's how we can uplift and continue. And when we're talking about that identity. Right. It's so important to know those stories, because if there's nothing else that can empower me, it's my ancestors. Right. It's them who guided me here to be here as my whole self or whatever self that is. And I think that that reclamation is so vital. Mm -hmm. It's so vital. And the stories of the ancestors that they went through uh, terribly hard times, survived, got through it remained resilient, can send a message that you will survive this difficult time. You'll get through it. It can. And back to Tuba's point, actually, as well, just about us being, um, you know, our, our story did not start as enslaved people. Actually, when, um, you know, Juan Galido is the first um, black person to have actually come to the Americas, and he was with the Spanish conquistadors. Now, they were obviously doing some terrible stuff, but we, we showed up as as free people in the Americas. So, you know, and being enslaved has not always been our story and obviously not always have, you know, will be and is. But um, I feel like that is something that we want people to, um, you know, know or that, hey, you know, you this is you. Right. Like, but aesthetics, no, we are coming from a really rich history of, uh, you know, royalty and blackness and um, people that have done incredible things. Um, I want to uh, this makes me think of um, a, a quote, Anthony, you showed me in the back of one of your books. Um uh, the hockey is for everyone is a quote that you said is very inspiring to mm-hmm. you as I think about the young people today and what they need and how we can help them. Uh, would you share that quote and, and why it spoke to you? Yeah, you absolutely. And, um, you know, it wasn't my direct quote, so let me uh, attribute it to the right person here. But it's uh, Aisha A. Uh, Siddiqui and uh, be the person you needed when you were younger. And, you know, I get chills even saying it now, but it's just one of those things where, right, like we all are. You know, you can't relitigate the past at the end of the day, but what you can do is make a better future. So, um, you know, that's, that's what I'm trying to do now. And uh, like I said, you know, off air, I've been so blessed. So I'm so grateful. I've had an incredible life. And, um, you know, that's why too much is uh, given, you know, much is uh, expected. So, I mean, that's where I'm, you know, out, you know, doing now. And I expect also a lot from, from young people. So, I mean, that's where I think that we a rise to the level of expectation that people want to put on us. So back to what Tuba was saying actually earlier as well about somebody maybe not giving you the respect that you deserve because you look a certain way or something like that, right? That could be, you know, an aggression or micro, um, you know, aggression that ends up really hurting your self-esteem. But, you know, at the end of the day, 
uh, you know, we're all worth it. We all have a voice. We all matter. So, you know, that's a lot of the work that I do now is making sure that people know that and can be uplifted. I want to know about your experiences as a youth hockey coach. So you're yeah. around some some young boys, some men. How old are the, the yeah. kids that you coach? Well, and boys and girls, actually, just because um, uh, I do stuff with Mosaic Hockey Collective as well. I'm on the board there. But, uh, you know, we're a new organization looking at uh, growth for for the game and not just um you know boys hockey but girls hockey as well and Wonderful. um so yeah i mean like it's really awesome and i actually coached uh last year with north commons pullers and with a great guy named kendall bull and porter who actually was another young black man from minnesota grew up in the st paul area played for creedon but we took a team of you know incredible kids that hadn't really um you know done too well with a record and ended up actually winning that championship. So that was a really, really cool moment. And then being able to see that later on, you know, the recognition that they were able to get from their peers as far as that goes. And so that was really cool. And, uh, you but do know, you see some of these uh, boys and girls struggling or do they hmm. talk to you uh, as a yeah, coach? Do well, they share things with you? So it's more like, not them, to be honest, right? Because that's just kind of how it goes a lot. Like that's kind of when I was younger, right? I didn't just you know, you don't just share that because a lot of times you don't want to be that problematic individual, even if you might know something is wrong. Mm. And it's also maybe you've you've spoken out before and nothing's happened. So a lot of times I'm actually getting more stuff from like parents that, mm -hmm. you know, it'll trickle out at home or they might be having some behavioral issue and they're like, hey, what's actually going on? And then it's like, oh, you know, so-and-so either on my team or on the other team or whatever has been saying this or doing this or, you know, all those kinds of things. And that's how it gets more flushed out but that's kind of again why i do think it's important for somebody like me to just be there because i i know that right at the end of the day i know that so if i do see a kid's like ultimately struggling um you know and they don't want to maybe you know be vulnerable around their friends or you know you don't want to call somebody out or this or that right you might not have that language yet um you know i recognize that so i can step in and you know help help with those situations but no for the most part you don't necessarily have have kids stepping up and you know saying that this is happening to me and it's wrong and um, because I'd been in that situation, I know exactly why they're not doing it. So I do, you know, try to um, encourage that. So getting back to you, both of you, uh, your work as uh, children's authors, and thank you for being willing to write these books. But um, let's talk about your publishers, because I, I want to make sure we give a shout out to the folks who helped you publish your books. And, mm -hmm. In your case, Anthony, it, it's Strive uh, Publishing, and we've had the uh, owner, Mary, on as, as a uh, guest before. And, and what do you want to say about just this, this publishing industry and having an opportunity for, for new and, and different stories being told now? So one, I think it's incredible. And, um, you know, I think Strive has done an incredible job. And so is Mary, um, you know, as well. And I give her so much kudos and to what she's doing. Um, now I'm actually independent as far as uh, my my books go as um, uh, the regs that I have and the soft covers and all that. And so that's been an incredible experience. I think that back again to just what like Strive and themselves are doing for, you know, trying to spread the word of black authors and for, um, you know, black women authors and Etc. You know, those voices are not always heard. So, you know, regardless of what, you know, ultimately, you know, happens in the publishing world, um, you know, I'm really uh, honored and it's proud to have still been, you know, part of that organization. Mm -hmm. And and your publishing company? Tuba? Yeah, they are local right here in Minneapolis. Miss um, Darv Beavis is the a founder Wise of Inc. Wise Inc. Publishing. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they were absolutely amazing with being able to help me preserve my story and not exploit my story. And I think that sometimes in this publishing industry, we see so much that like when they're when our stories 
aren't being told um, and it feels so marketed and this is like a tool to be able to put out there. This was certainly not the case working with Wise Inc. They supported me with this entire process with uplifting my story and ensuring that it was my truth that was being published out there and that I had um, every opportunity to be able to be in control of how my story was going to be put out in um the world. Right. Well, I am grateful for your work. I'm grateful for your willingness to share your story. Our time is up, <laughs> so we're going to say goodbye. We're going to go out on some music. Okay. Uh, one of your favorite songs, Tuba, I'm told. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Tuba Wynn, an early childhood educator and the author of the oh, children's sorry. book, My Daddy <laughs> Tells Me, as well as Anthony Walsh, the author of the series of books, Hockey is for Everybody. He's in law school there at Mitchell Hamlin and coaches youth hockey. Marvin Gates, my cousin. Oh, and Mar- okay, that's yeah. a whole other show. All right, I'll let you go. We've been listening back to a conversation I had a few months ago. And since we talked, Anthony Walsh has graduated with a law degree. Our conversation was made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For more reporting in our North Star Journey series, go to nprnews.org and look for the North Star Journey link. And if you missed part of today's show, remember you can always find our our shows on my podcast. Just search for NPR News with Angela Davis wherever you get your podcasts and then listen when it's convenient for you. Be safe, everybody. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.